Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend, co-host, and the man I would throw fireworks at a crazy alien with, Adam. <laughs> man, I would throw them with you, too. Would you throw <laughs> Satan's baby, or would you throw Satan's uncle, or anything that's, I guess, Satan's whatever, as long as it, like had the power of, what, five M80s? <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I've never been a big firework. I mean, I like watching fireworks, but I've never, growing up, I never really got into fireworks in terms of, like, buying them and shooting them off or anything. I know lots of people who used to do that, but I would do it to save the world. It's a worthy cause, man. Fireworks to save yeah. the world, definitely worthy cause. And it looks good, too. So that's, like, bonus, right? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. It's very pretty. It is. It's a pretty, it's a pretty battle. <laughs> Very <laughs> colorful. <laughs> All right, man. We're in the finale of season three entitled The Battle of Starcourt. This did not disappoint. I'm excited to talk about it. I know you are. There were some highs. There were some lows. I laughed. I cried. I raised my eyebrows more than once. And I am so looking forward to talking about this with you. I don't want to belabor things. Let's get right into it, okay? All right. Cold open. As always, we're in the Todd father's car. Hopper, Joyce, Murray, they're hurrying to Starcourt. And then we quickly get to Starcourt. Something is trying to come out of Elle's leg. This is like alien in the leg, you know? And I'm hoping she doesn't say, oh, no, not again, even though it hasn't happened before. But (laughs) I think the gross factor, in a good way, has been amped up to 11 for this season, just in general. And I think that this moment sort of solidifies the, oh my gosh, really? Your special effects are just going haywire. Like the team's like, how gross can we get, Duffers? And they're like, get as gross as you want. We've got an unlimited budget. And this is what we get. Yeah, We get this thing that is sort of like pushing and trying to protrude through her skin. And Jonathan is like, getting some makeshift surgery equipment from the Chinese food place. I love that Robin is trying to relate to the situation with some kind of soccer injury that her friend had. It's easy, easy. You know, it's it's not actually that bad. There was uh, the goalie on my soccer team, Beth Wildfire. This other girl slid into her leg and like the whole bone came out of her knee, six inches or something. It was insane. Robin. Yeah? You're not helping. I'm sorry. And right, I feel right. bad because I know that she wants to be like, I want to help too, but she can't. I mean, yeah. telling a war story <laughs> is not going to help the situation. That's okay, though. So no. Jonathan cuts, but isn't able to get away with whatever it is, get whatever it is out. So Elle has to use her he's powers like, to. He's kind of sticking his hand inside her leg. And that's where I kind of was like, oh, okay, that's that's a little little too far from <laughs> yeah, it was so, it was it was so visceral because you yeah. know you cut and then it's like almost like a blackhead pimple just sort of protrudes out and I thought he would just sort of like try to pull it out from the skin but he was like digging in like under a sheet like a bed sheet trying to grab right. that and I'm like how do you okay I get it there is a panic and we're trying to fix this thing really quickly but logic man who's not in the situation who's just watching it putting one hand over his eye is saying, why are you sticking your hand in someone's leg where the thing is moving? Like, why are you doing that? But 
again, I understand you're trying to solve the problem right then. So forgiven, Jonathan. Good job. Way to put fire to the knife to keep it sanitary. Good job there. That's a great kind of pro tip. And some giant plastic gloves. (laughs) Yes, giant plastic gloves. Keep it sanitary. Keep it healthy. Band-Aids are not going to fix this problem. And so... (laughs) At that point, Elle says, I got this. And she uses her powers, flings it. It gets thrown and flung. And the next thing we see is a big foot of Hopper. The adults have arrived. Curfew's over. It's time for the kids to go to bed. No, it's not. Obviously, there's a lot more (laughs) that needs to happen here. But I think this is the moment, second place, I would call it second place to the unification of the last episode where all the kids have come together. Now everybody's together. Like every major player in this battle is at ground zero and they're ready to go. Yeah. Did you, I don't know if you remember the little ear eel from Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan, the, uh, where they put it in um, Chekhov's ear yes. in, in this helmet. Yeah. This, this little mind flayer slug kind of reminded me of that. And then, you know, Hopper, of yeah. course, crushes it under his boot but yeah it's it was yeah pretty pretty gross and yeah but this was a very interesting cold open because we have talked about this this entire season some of the cold opens are really long like they cut back and forth between different different uh sort of threads and you're kind of touching base with all of them this was less than three minutes and 20 seconds before we got to the credits which is for this season that's really short yeah very short. And I think it's meant to be because yeah. I think the Duffers know that the audience is like, if you're calling this thing the Battle of Starcourt, we need to get into this now. <laughs> <laughs> so right. let's get this thing out and let's get through the credits and let's get back to Starcourt, which we do. And I realized as I was watching it, the camera pans down. It's called the Starcourt. I don't know if that's the name of the food court is the star court or if the official mall is called the star court mall. I don't think it is because it says star court mall on the front on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a play on the mall's title by calling it the star court instead of the food court. I think you're right. I think because that's where they are primarily in this entire battle is in the food court. I think that, yeah, it's like the star court food court, even though it doesn't say food court, Clearly, that's what the implication is, is that this is the star yeah. court version of a food court. Yeah, I yeah. did see that, though. I think that's a little little lazy. I mean, you could call it something else. Maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe the galaxy class food court or something like that to kind of play off mm. of star court mall. Just to repeat the name of your mall, I think, is a little little lazy. So come on, Russians. You can do better than that. Yeah. You are better. Well, maybe you aren't. Based on the Russians we've seen underground, they're probably not better than that. So whatever. Well, we don't know that the Russians built it. They may have. I think they're just like behind, right? You know, they're they're sort of. You don't think they're kings of neon at that point? (laughs) I I don't know. They're they're clearly footing the bill in some way. You know, they're the the money behind the operation. But I I I, I would assume some American construction company (laughs) actually (laughs) built them all. Well, shame on whoever designed the the name. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Shame yeah. on the brain. But I, I will lines. I will just one more time. I know I mentioned it in the beginning of the season when they went shopping at the Starcourt Mall and everything. I, but I just want to, now that it's nighttime in the mall and we're seeing all of the beautiful kind of neon lights drenching the set, the blues and the pinks, I just have to say what a, a gorgeous set this is. What a 
not just from a nostalgia point of view, but what a great location to get to film in and act in. I mean, and as you said, here we have pretty much all the main cast is finally assembled, Avengers assembled in this one location on this one set. And it's interesting because it doesn't last long. Like they all get to be there on location for like maybe a day. And then they all split up again into three distinct groups. (laughs) And the mall gets destroyed. I mean, that's kind of sad. I know it had to be done, but I always get frustrated and a little sad when a set piece that I sort of fall in love with has to get destroyed in this way. When it's set on fire later by accident or design, I'm like tear in my eye, even before like the actual tears are supposed to flow later in the episode. I'm like sad that Starcourt Mall is on fire because you're right. It's a beautifully crafted set and it's very utilitarian in terms of like how they use it functionally, even down to when Robin slides down the middle of the escalator. I mean, We talked about it on the last episode that probably a typical escalator that goes up and down like that side by side isn't as wide, but it's a very clever thing to design a set with familiar character traits like an escalator, but alter it in a way that fits the needs of the actual scenes. And I thought that everything about this, even the way the food court is designed, we have different stores and different levels that serve at least somewhat of a purpose like at some point they go through the gap so the gap has to be i think it's on a second level because they end up going down the stairs i don't know but in some ways they have to get to those stores and so you know having the stairs where they are having the escalators where they are it's all very purposeful but it still looks clean it still looks well designed as if it's supposed to be a functioning mall and i think there's a lot of credit that needs to go to the production team for not only building it, but those that actually designed it. The name of the Star Court food court notwithstanding. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else is just yeah, fantastic. Right, right. Yeah. It must have been great as an actor to kind of walk onto that set for the first time and just kind of look around, especially if you're, say, Winona Ryder who grew up in the eighties, to be like, Wow, I just went yeah. back in time. <laughs> you know, the kids are probably like, Yeah, yeah it's a mall. <laughs> but the uh the older the actors are like, What's a mall? <laughs> yeah, what's a mall? <laughs> <laughs> what's a star court <laughs> we call this fast what's a food? walden books what what do they sell there <laughs> do they sell nfts there <laughs> i'm gonna say this on the air right now that is the worst thing ever nfts cannot cannot even i i concur that. i don't see any value in it even if i had all the money in the world i would not waste it on something as frivolous as an NFT. I I just don't get it. I don't either. So the kids are explaining to the adults about the monster. I love what Steve says. It's not the mind flare, but actually a weapon. And I sort of had inklings of this, but I think that adds to the mystery of the mind flare. So when we think about these other things, and I say this as a broad stroke sort of prediction into the next season, or just sort of my thoughts on the series as a whole up to this point, the Mind Flayer is a mystery. The Mind Flayer is he, as we sort of talked about in season two, these pieces, the shadow monster that we saw at the end of season two was, I think, an extension of the Mind Flayer connected to the Mind Flayer via the gate, because we find out at the end, obviously, that, you know, close the gate, kill the weapon. But up to this point, I didn't really consciously look at the thing that had been being created as anything more than the Mind Flayer. So it makes a lot of sense that you've got this greater being, this kind of godlike creature 
who is sort of controlling this external creature as its own type of weapon for these kids. doesn't take away the terror or the crazy like right. design of it, but it really does sort of help reinforce that cool mythology that the Duffers are putting in this by keeping the Mind Flayer somewhat distant, somewhat covert. Like we really, when, right. when Steve said that, I was like, you know what? We don't know as much as we think we do about the Mind Flayer. I mean, even the Mind Flayer himself, we gave him that name or the kids gave him that name just like they gave the Demogorgon the name based right. off of D&D. We may get a different name in season four. I don't know. But I, yeah. at the very least, I can appreciate the fact that the Mind Flayer is sort of this mysterious entity that we still don't know much about. Right. Yeah. It's not just, you know, in the first season, we kind of just assume that the Demogorgon is just a creature that has somehow slipped into our dimension from this other world and it's just hunting and killing and or bringing people back now we realize that there's a sort of more intentional reason for everything that's going on that there's something behind it's not just sort of a random event that keeps happening that every time Mm -hmm. the gate seems to have a crack or an opening something occurs that is connected and we just don't fully understand that yet we're not uh, the duffers know and they have a plan, but they're just kind of giving us little nuggets of information at this point to kind of, you know, like any good mythology, you don't want to give everything away up front. You want your viewers and fans to speculate, to to sort of figure it out. Like with Lost, like what's the smoke monster? What is that thing? There will always be shows like that that make people talk and theorize about what is really happening or what's behind something. And it, I mean, Stranger Things, I think, is doing it really well, which is why they have the following that they do. Right. So they know that it's uh, a weapon and that closing the gate will cut off the brain from the body in order to kill it. Murray is showing off Alexi's map. He thinks he knows what he's talking about. Obviously, Erica and Dustin know a little bit more because they have been in the tunnels. They use the map to explain how to get to the machine and they offer their help and they promptly get told, nope, (laughs) by Hopper. The adults are the wet blankets of the scene. (laughs) Always telling the kids no. Yeah. These kids have seen more than their fair share of danger. And I think Hopper and Joyce and the adults are just like, okay, you know, we'll take it from here. I know that we've, we both are not big fans of Erica, but in this scene, when she calls Murray Bauman, Mr. Bunman, I kind of laughed a little bit. So I was like, I'll give her, (laughs) give her props for that one line, making me chuckle a little bit. And then, of course, Murray's response also made me laugh when he said, I'm sorry, why is this four-year-old speaking to me? <laughs> She's like, I'm 10. <laughs> no, you're not. You're 40 is what you are, Erica. <laughs> and you're bitter. I think that's the other thing that I don't like about her is that nothing she said in the tone in which she says it is anything but sarcastic and rude. Like, she's never happy. Right. Give her a hug or something right. to make her feel better. What happened in her life? To make her so bitter and angry and <laughs> right <laughs> in all her 10 years of life. She is a crotchety old man at 10 years old. Yeah, exactly. And I think we know she comes from a decent family. We've seen her kitchen in the morning in season two, and they have a nice house, successful parents. It's not like she's coming from a broken home or something. Um, there's no bad influences in her life. It doesn't appear. So anyway, I don't want to waste too much time ripping her this character apart (laughs) but she's in it whether we like it or not 
So Hopper's getting ready with the guns. The party reconciles. Dustin explains that, uh, you know, he misses them and they missed him and Erica with her snarky like, oh, that's so gross, whatever. Yeah. So he then explains to Hopper and Murray that the walkie-talkies that they're going to use to go down to the tunnels won't work, but they need a stronger tower. And where would that stronger tower come from? <laughs> <laughs> Cerebro, which we find out apparently survives the rain, apparently was not taken down as we suspected so. Right. We, t- and we said, why not just leave it up? And they did. Yeah. So he says, if you want us to navigate, you got us. But we need a head start and a car. And this is where yep. Steve gets excited about the Todd father. Oh, man. Now this, this is what I'm talking about. Todd father? Oh, screw Todd. Steve's her daddy now. Did you just talk about yourself in the third person? Did he just call himself daddy? All right. Where are we going? And I think Steve goes, where are we going? And Dustin says, Weathertop. And Steve's like, where? And Weathertop, of course, is another Hobbit reference. It's a location in The Lord of the Rings. So, of course, only Dustin names everything in Hawkins after locations from Middle Earth. Of course. (laughs) That no one else understands. Obscure fantasy references by Dustin. (laughs) It does make sense, though. Weathertop was the highest point in middle earth or at least in that area that they were in and this of course is the highest point in hawkins which is why dustin constructed his cerebro antenna there to get the best range yeah that makes sense so meanwhile murray with his uh treasure trove of keys of course he has that many keys because he probably has that many locks for that many drawers windows <laughs> lo- uh, doors and whatever is directing nancy and jonathan on which of those keys is needed to unlock I guess, a drawer or something at his place. What we find out is that he's giving them access to his house so that they can hide Elle, because at this point we know that the creature's after her. Uh, At the same time, Joyce has this temporary goodbye to Will before she and Hopper take off into the tunnels. Hopper and Elle have this great moment. I love this, this father-daughter moment. And I love that she says, my battery's low, but it will recharge in saying that she's lost her powers temporarily, what we think is temporary, what we find out, spoiler alert, that she doesn't ever regain them in this episode. Or even then, in the epilogue, which is several months after, she's still struggling. Right. Yeah, that's what I meant. The episode, like, by the time the credits roll. Yeah. So they're having, they're having a moment, and then she goes with Mike and Nancy and Jonathan, and um, it's a great line from Hopper. He says, Mike, be careful. Not much meaning behind that, just, you know, he's... I think Mike's shown that he's earned Hopper's respect. He's grown up. Obviously, he's lived this adventure. And then everyone pretty much has their assignments. This is kind of what we felt at the end of season one, where you had this conglomeration of these people, this team in Hawkins High, and they all sort of go their separate ways to an extent. Some stay, some go, but they all kind of have their own battle to fight. And in some ways, I was kind of like disappointed because I'm like, you just got together. The Battle of Starcourt, stay there. Like, but I understood. Absolutely. It was like five minutes. As I said, all these actors actually got to be on camera <laughs> together in this episode, which is kind of sad. But as you said, there's a lot of good emotional moments in this period when they're all together. And just to add to what you said, I, I really liked David Harbour's performance here. He was very fatherly to Elle, more than he's really been all season. Just the way he looked at her and talked to her when she says, I can fight better than any of us you know and i'm just like yeah you're you're a good dad you know you you can do this you know it's just it's just difficult watching your daughter have her first boyfriend that's all (laughs) 
<laughs> that's what <laughs> that was a struggle he's been having for yeah. a while now. But it's uh, clearly he loves her, cares for her, and and just you know that's why he's sending her off to Murray's bunker or whatever he lives in <laughs> to get her Murray's as far away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they just need to get her hidden. Then we're in the hallway going towards the elevator. Joyce Hopper and Murray are still trying to figure out what to do. Uh, Two man versus three man, turn off the machine versus explode it. I I think that the majority rules here that Joyce and Murray are like, explode the thing. And Hopper's like, Joyce, you got to stay back. This is, you know, stop being helpful. Right. (laughs) Clearly the the bickering is not going to stop. The bickering nonstop. Yeah. Nonstop, nonstop. And I think it's because they haven't gotten together yet. Yes. That's Murray. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything they say is just back and forth between them. Yeah. During this Everything annoys them. hour long elevator ride. <laughs> that takes ten, you know, ten seconds. <laughs> so stupid. It's like a turbo lift on the Enterprise is what it is. It's like <laughs> right. Ten forward, please. And then five seconds later you're there, even though you've gone like eighty decks down. But even in Star Trek, that's a problem they have. First of all, they're called turbo lifts as if they go turbo speed. And yet sometimes they have full scenes in the turbo lift as they're going, you know, five flights down or forward or whatever. And it's the same kind of weird thing we talked about last time where in film or television, there's like time is somehow compressed from reality, from real time so that the characters movie can, seconds, can have movie their time. Yeah, they can have their <laughs> their moment. While they're in the elevator, Murray makes this great line. He says, if all goes right, they'll never know we are here, which is a great sort of tropey way to tell us yeah. things are going to go wrong. <laughs> famous all last the Russians words. Are waiting. Yeah. yeah, famous last words. All the Russians are waiting for them at the bottom. Murray tries to negotiate by talking Russian, and Hopper is Hopper. He just shoots them. And Murray's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm improvising. <laughs> This is a great team. This is like the B team, not the A team. (laughs) And they're like, where the A team would be like, I love it when a plan comes together. They're like, I love it when a plan doesn't. I love when a plan just completely goes south because I can do what I want, says Hopper. And of course, Hopper immediately goes for the the Russian cap, which makes me think, oh, yeah, they're going to go Star Wars here and put on the Stormtrooper (laughs) or or Indiana Jones. I mean, really, it's like Jones. Yeah, there's probably... A hundred movies where characters are infiltrating <laughs> an enemy compound where they knock out the bad guys and put on the enemy yeah. uniform. But what I can appreciate about those movies, particularly Star Wars yeah. and particularly Indiana Jones, is that there is a clear indication that the uniforms don't fit. Aren't you a little st- short for <laughs> right. a stormtrooper? Harrison Ford with yep. the short, like, stuffy. Yeah. These uniforms seem yep. to fit just fine. So did you actually shoot three people yeah. that happen to be the same size? Like, I don't know what's what's going on here. But clearly the outfits seem to be a good fit for these three individuals. Well, at least for Hopper and for Murray. But Joyce, of course, is swimming in one of the uniforms. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no women's cut in the Russian uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So outside Starcourt, Nancy, Jonathan, Will, Lucas, and Mike are in the car that won't start. Because the ignition cable is gone. What happened? And then we hear the revving of an engine. And Billy is in the distance, revving the engine that prompts Nancy to get everyone back in the mall. And I'm in complete agreement. I'm like, the monster's out there. I wondered why he waited 
Like, was he waiting for them to find an ignition cable to try to start the cart legitimately so that then he could run into him? I don't know. There was no real explanation given on like, was it too quick for him to ram them at that point, but not later? I don't know. I'm not. The only thing I can think of is that he was sort of told to be there to verify if L was indeed in the mall, like a spy, and to be like to communicate because clearly the mind flayer or the weapon was off in the woods healing itself <laughs> while Billy was sort of searching for L, I guess, or or trying to verify gotcha. L's location. And because soon after this, of course, that's when the weapon shows up. So I think there's some connection yeah. here between Billy's awareness of the fact that she's there and of course trying to escape. So I think Billy's main purpose was to keep her there, to keep her from trying to escape the mall. Cause if he can keep her in the mall, then the weapon can come in and get her essentially. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. So we're on the road next scene to Cerebro, Steve, Robin, Dustin and Erica a lot more banter about the possible made-up Susie. <laughs> Great moment with Steve where he kind of hesitates when asked if she's real. Dustin's like, Why are you hesitating? I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I think she sounds real. You know, totally, absolutely real. Uh, is the bromance getting broken up? Or the, are the boys, you know, is the, is the bond breaking? You gotta be with me, Steve. Gotta be with me, says Dustin, essentially. <laughs> like, if you're gonna say say she's real... Make it convincing. Own it. Yeah, own, own the it. Confession or own the lie if you're going to lie about it. <laughs> so they ride the car as fast as they can up the hill so they don't have to hike all the way up. Doesn't make it. They hike the rest of the way, which really isn't very far. So the car <laughs> made it up a good chunk of the hill because it was like maybe 50 yards until they got to the top. Yeah, the camera kind of pans up. Yeah, the yeah. camera pans up, and you're like, oh, there it is. It's right there. Like, they've got yeah. <laughs> they got like 90% of the way up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> While they're there, we hear in the distance that Mike on the walkie is communicating through Cerebro, and he calls them the Scoops Troop. So... <laughs> While I fully admit that I did not make that name up, I got it from another podcast that I'm listening to as we're going through this series. I love that they are called the Scoops Troop because it's perfectly aligned with what they what they are, the Scoops Troop. Yeah. Then we're back at Starcourt, and we find out that everybody's getting nicknames. This crew right here is called Griswold, and it makes perfect sense because that car is basically the family the truckster. Family. From, yeah, it's the car from the... Uh, lampoon movies national lampoon's vacation yep so they're stuck they need to find a way to leave and they see that overturned car and they say hey let's get an ignition cable from there so l tries to use her powers but she's unable to but we stop before we see the result of that later on where they're actually you know it gets a payoff later because they're trying to use physics to actually overturn the car so it's just more confirmation that her powers are not working at this point right and right as an audience member, I'm sort of getting nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, has she been depowered? Is this like Superman 2 where <laughs> she's gone into the, the the mirror room and is now Clark Kent for good and she's going to get beat up right. at a diner later? I, I hope not. Yeah, she clearly needs more batteries. She needs some of Dustin's walkie-talkie batteries. <laughs> that he doesn't have enough of. Like she needs 80. No. And I'm like, well, give him, give, him, <laughs> give her four. Maybe she'll get a little bit more power. <laughs> yeah. More power. 
I will uh, give credit to Jonathan here. This was a smart idea that they don't have to actually make that car work. They just have to get the ignition starter out of it. And I'm like, that's actually the cable. I mean, that's a smart move. Like, yeah. I mean, if you know how to take it out and install it, I wouldn't. I'm not a car guy, so I wouldn't know how to do the the actual removal and installation of that cable. But if he knows how to do it, I mean, that's, that's really smart. Then we go back to the Russian underground, a disguised Hopper and Murray in their yep. amazingly fitting Russian outfits. Get past the guard <laughs> because Murray has this great silver tongue. I guess silver tongue would be like he's lying, but he's, I mean, he's, he's very cordial with the guard and he yeah. reciprocates that because when they let Joyce out of the trunk, she's like, really? What was all the talking? He's like, he's a nice guard. And I'm like, yeah, he's a nice guard too. <laughs> I hope he gets evaporated because he's a terrible guard and a Russian at this, you know, we're supposed to hate him, but right, right. yeah, he's a nice guy. <laughs> so it was a fun little but banter it, between them. And it does, uh, it makes you realize that, again, I don't know Russian, but he clearly is speaking Russian in with a perfect accent that these other native Russians think he's one of them. It's like, I feel like if you were to hear a Russian try to speak English, it would sound like Ivan Drago or something. You know, you would hear that accent. So I think it's amazing that Murray knows Russian that well, that he can blend, sort of blend right in and he knows the culture and he knows what they drink. Like he really, I mean, who knows what his past is. There might be a whole nother novel. I was going to say, novel. maybe he's a splinter yeah. cell. Maybe he's a splinter cell. Yeah. Infiltrating yeah. <laughs> our hearts and minds with his Americanness. that's not really, he's really a Russian in disguise. <laughs> right. They get away, and then he goes into the vent, leaving Hopper and Joyce. Then we're back at Starcourt, and using physics, as we mentioned before, this crew are able to turn the car over, and Nancy and Jonathan, they start looking for the ignition cable. Meanwhile, Elle is digging in the trash, and for a minute, I was like, oh my gosh, she's gone around the bend. She's now digging in the garbage, but <laughs> yeah. she's hungry. what we see is that she's... <laughs> She's trying to charge her batteries like the Mr. Fusion, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, what she's actually doing is trying to go back to basics. So we get that flashback of her crushing a can as a bald-headed little girl. And notably, notably it was a a new Coke can that she's trying to crush in the mall. And of course, the flashback is a Coca-Cola classic from when she was able to do it. So That's uh, why she can't crush it. New Coke. Yeah, Yeah, that's what it is. You know, not cooperating. (laughs) Like it always did as a terrible Coke product. (laughs) (laughs) My thought at this point was like, okay, Duffers, you've let us know. She can't use her powers. Thanks. We got it. Is there something you're going to do later that's going to make it really bad? Are you going to kill her? Because you killed off Alexi. So you killed off Barb. You killed off Bob. You can kill off Elle. That's fine. Go ahead. Just break our hearts. (laughs) No, but her name's not Belevin, so she can't die. (laughs) In Russian, it starts with a B. That's what it is. Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, I will just say that I think that <laughs> all they're really trying to show here is not only can she not move a car, she can't even crush a tiny little piece of aluminum, which was yeah. something she could do as a, as a much younger child. So clearly, it's not just her battery. There's something it's like she lost her mojo. <laughs> yeah. Like Austin Powers, you know. <laughs> Groovy, baby. Can you do your powers for me, L? Not your Austin Powers. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my gosh, if they parodied the show, how funny would that be? <laughs> I'm waiting for it. I've got powers, baby. <laughs> yeah, there's there's got to be somebody out there. There's, I mean, Mel Brooks doesn't make movies anymore, really. So he used to parody whatever was popular, whatever genre was was really in at the time back in the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, early 90s. So it's the kind of thing that I feel like he would have done. But no one's really doing that anymore. There's not there's not really yeah a, a filmmaker out there or at least a successful one that's kind of been able to do that in modern day, I feel like. Yeah, I think the last set was like the scary movies, the parodies of that right. or the right. or the not another the teen brothers. movie, those types of things. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. So I think that's probably the last wave of those types of films that yeah. we haven't seen in quite a while i think it's kind of digressed or regressed or progressed depending on how, yeah. you, how you see them into the the raunch comedies right. that we're seeing now so right absolutely yeah so it's at this point that the mind tingle is active and will and the crew looks <laughs> up to see the weapon above them which crashes down and totally ruins the food court or the star court which i think was ruined by the name but add insult to injury at this point why not you all courts are ruined at this point <laughs> <laughs> yes night court that's ruined <laughs> the basketball court so back at the uh, russian underground the intimidating russians meet up with the goofy russians and visually this is what's i think affirming my feelings on what we experienced in that kind of weird episode that we didn't really care for i think in all seriousness that's probably what i found so dissonant is that you have hawkins terminator who I take very seriously in his gang. And when they're juxtaposed against these Russians in these outfits that are sort of goofy, that really amplifies what I think my frustration was, is that you had visually tonally different characters that occupy the same kind of person. In this case, the Russian military or a Russian force. I can believe one and I can't believe another. And so it was really sort of hilarious to see that visually put together where you have serious Russians and funny Russians. And I'm like, this is like a collision of gigantic proportions here. And I don't know what to make of it, but it definitely affirmed kind of my feelings in a visual way. Yeah, I agree. And it kind of makes you think, okay, if you're going to build this elaborate top secret underground facility in America on American soil, far away from your homeland, you're going to basically recruit your top agents, right? Your top military personnel, like the Terminator character, you're going to get everyone involved, top scientists, top soldiers, everybody. But like you said, we have these kind of cliched, goofy, inept people running around down there. <laughs> it's like, why are they there? Like they, they should be back in Russia working at like a prison or something. <laughs> well, now that you say it, I think the reason that they're down there is to justify Dustin and Erica being able to escape so easily. Well, like I think yeah. if you had had the Terminator and his boys down there, no way, no way that those kids are getting out. Yeah. I think that you have Steve and Robin, their their throats are gone, they're slit in an yeah. instant. There's no questioning. You're not asking who they work for. It doesn't matter. You're dead. But I think right. that in order to really sort of convince us that Dustin and Erica and Steve and Robin could get out of this place, you need to put inept people in there. So works yes. in some capacity, but when you start kind of merging those worlds together when those worlds collide it becomes a little bit of a tonal mess at that point so right i right. again grateful to kind of have that and help me sort of justify or quantify or explain mentally why that was kind of frustrating was good no i think you really latched onto it there and and thankfully they don't play 
it up that much in this episode. It's like a couple little right. moments, like that one guard that Murray talks to in Russian and kind of convinces him to let them through. Like there's a few little moments, but that's about it. You know, there's for the most part, the Russians that they encounter here are deadly and are not playing games. <laughs> it's just a little remnants of that episode left over. Yeah. The scene cuts over to Hopper, who is clearly getting more nervous about the situation and specifically about L. The bickering continues, but the accent piece here for me is Joyce doing a pretty great impression of Hopper. I was <laughs> yeah. laughing a little bit. And then Hopper, after her like funny impression, says, despite all the arguing, I hope that you see we make a pretty good team. And there's a little bit of some small reconciliation. Joyce then responds by asking if she got the job. And she says, Detective Byers has a ring, doesn't it? And then Hopper brings up the fact that she might still be leaving, which sort of calls back to the Sean Levy episode where we find out that she's been thinking about moving. I think that if there was an opportunity for them to sort of get together, which was the dance that we were a part of with Murray, this is a great way to do it that she uses this moment as an opportunity to basically say, let's be boyfriend and girlfriend. She rehashes the whole 7 p.m. at this great restaurant that shouldn't be there because Hawkins, Indiana, we've already kind of right. gone through that mess. Enzo's. Enzo's, yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> he calls the guy Enzo, too funny. <laughs> and I think it's really cool because it's like the softer side of their relationship. Watching her set this up, I, I love that he says, after she asks him, how about Enzo's at like 8 o'clock? And he says, well, Elle likes to watch Miami Vice on Friday nights at 10. I can't be out late. Oh, it's that's a great little, yeah. little dad moment. He's like, oh, I yeah. care about my daughter. I really do. Exactly. And it's really sweet. It's just, it really is. Sometimes the way David Harbour delivers his lines, it's very childlike and it's so endearing. Because he presents himself more often than not as this brooding kind of get off my lawn guy. So when he's able to emote verbally like this or later on non-verbally, it really does make you fall in love more with his character of Hopper. Of course, the scene ends with her saying, listen, you better say yes before I change my mind. And it's just, it's great. It's a great way to end that. And at that moment, I didn't believe like it was a cheap resolution to get them together i really felt like that felt organic to me it absolutely did they basically make a date and hopper says i'll pick you up at seven on friday night and i think the key here to this scene is that i think they both know that they're going into the belly of the beast basically and that you never know what will happen so we better get our feelings out while we can and hopefully we'll make it out of here so we can celebrate at enzo's on friday night but i think if yeah. they weren't in such dire straits I don't know if this would have come out. I don't know if they would have, at least not so quickly, you know, this is what, a few hours after Murray essentially tells them that they should just get together already. So I think that it's the life and death situation that they've been put into that that's essentially forcing them to be more open with one another about their past and potentially their future. Exactly. That scene sort of finishes off we get another nickname for Murray. He yeah. is called Bald Eagle. I love that Dustin makes him say it because I think Dustin's proud of these code names, particularly him. And it's perfect because yeah. he's bald and he is very patriotic. So we think he might be Russian. So as we've we, alluded so to. we think. 
so we yep. think. <laughs> but uh, he's needing directions, and based on where the My Little Pony thesis conversation happened, Dustin thinks that he's at the third junction, so fly right, as he says. From that moment, the camera cuts to Steve, who sees Starcourt Mall sort of all disco with the lights. So Dustin calls Griswold, but the weapon breaks the walkie inside the mall. So Steve's like, I got to go, guys. I got to do my thing. And I love what we see later with what he does. It's great. And this is another example of it not being just a mindless monster. You know, in a, in a different movie, it would just like stomp on the walkie, but it like it picks it up. It basically holds it up to its mouth, screeches into it, and then throws the walkie-talkie against the wall, destroying it. So it is essentially telling them that it's there and it's going to kill everybody. It's it's communicating. Bring it is what it's saying. It yeah. screeched, bring it. Exactly. I translated that. There were no subtitles needed. I, I, I heard it. It said, it said bring it. <laughs> you speak Mind Flayer better than me, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it took months, months of learning. <laughs> the mind flare language. <laughs> so then we're back at Starcourt and everyone's hiding. Of course, the creature's lurking. They try to figure out a way to escape and Elle suggests to go through the gap. Why not? Because the gap's a great place to shop. It's also a great place to escape a mind flare weapon. It's a gap in the gap. A gap That's to get right. out in the gap. <laughs> <laughs> the gap gap where you shop and escape. <laughs> That's a great slogan. Right. Well, out the back. <laughs> the next time I go into an Old Navy or a Gap, I will ask, where can I get protected from the Mind Flayer's weapon? Can you tell me? <laughs> or where can I get jeans? You know, can you answer one of those two questions and you'll make me happy? They'll be like, oh, that's at the New Navy? That's at the other mall. <laughs> the New <laughs> Navy. <laughs> Did you notice, though, in this little moment, there's a real subtle little addition where, remember the little slug that, Hopper squishes, it kind of crawls over and reattaches to the foot of the I monster. I did see that. And it, kind of like yeah. the T-1000 liquid metal, you know, yeah. kind of morphing yeah. back into. I like that they add those little details in these scenes mm-hmm. that you can totally miss them because if you're looking at the actors like running off in the distance or something, you may not be paying attention to the foreground, but it's uh, yeah, yeah it's... great little detail there. I like that. So they run, they make noise, the creature chases them, and then... Oh, this is great. Thinking he sees L, he actually grabs a mannequin and flings it back, which I thought was fantastic. So Lucas gets an idea with the wrist rocket. He ends up popping a balloon, which distracts the creature. Everyone takes off to the back hallway. So that little kind of, hey, go that way. We'll go this way. Fool you. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) And they make it up the stairs and then they get outside with the ignition cable. So clearly the gap was on the food court level and they had to go up the stairs to where the Right. The main stuff is, which, by the way, I think is so cool about malls. I never think while I'm in a mall that I'm actually underground until I go right. into a store and have to go upstairs to a parking lot. I was even yeah. today at our local mall. I'm like, dude, I was totally underground. And I'm like 44 years old saying that. So I'm yeah, whatever. <laughs> but it's so cool to be able to be like, I'm going to go underground to go shopping today at the at Old Navy. <laughs> and it makes sense. Why You might as well use that the space you know as a lower level to the mall not just a basement but like actually make that an extra level for shopping and eating or whatever underground eateries is what they should have called it yes all right (laughs) so they get outside with the ignition cable they attempt to start the car billy is still waiting 
And then this is where he races toward them. And Nancy, in her Nancy way, she's like, I got a gun, dude. You forgot that I know how to shoot this thing. So she shoots at him and it's about to collide. He's about to collide with this car. But just before that collision, Steve shows up. I'm like, woo, there comes hero Steve. Still got the uniform on, but he's got the hair. So he's got a superpower. He's coming in. (laughs) Unfortunately, the Todd father's destroyed. That's okay. There's a pan up with the camera. The creature's on top of the mall. Oh my gosh, what's happening? And then Steve and Robin get in the family truckster and take off toward wherever they go. And there is, uh, I didn't notice this upon my first viewing, but on top of the station wagon are all the fireworks like loaded up. Oh, yeah. good so they're, catch. Like, you know, good like either, in boxes Adam. and like tied onto the roof, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, clearly an element that will come back later in the episode. You think? Chekhov's fireworks yeah. at this point lots of checkoff insert backup thing remember? here yeah. backup yeah l back, needs that's backup. Right. backup l needs backup she does need backup if she can't crush a new coke she, can that's just... she needs front up <laughs> and backup all up she needs yeah. up <laughs> <laughs> she just needs to be up she does wake up back at the underground the bald eagle has landed yes murray yes. finds an electrical yes. panel and i think he begins to depower it which sets off the alarm, prompting Hopper and Joyce to implement what I call phase two of this master mm-hmm. plan. They walk down a hallway to the keypad where they enter the wrong code, which, as we found out from the previous episode, is Plank's constant. Hopper's freaking out, rightly so, calls Murray and says, the code isn't working. What's your problem? And <laughs> while Murray's going like, I thought I knew the code. I thought I was smart. I thought I was amazing. Dustin hears the dilemma. And while he doesn't know the entire code, he knows someone who does. And then we're back at Cerebro, and he calls Susie. <laughs> the slow reveal is fantastic, Adam. We see Salt Lake City, title card. We see a clarinet. And then we hear on the intercom as we see her, we hear him say what from the first episode? Susie, do you copy? And she does. She's kind of mad at Dusty Bun, who calls her Susie <laughs> Pooh. And he asks her if she knows Planks Constant. And she says, I'll give it to you, but I need you to do something for me. And here we go. Adam, (laughs) I don't know if there was a moment in this series that made me smile and shake my head at the same time more than what we saw. Listeners, I watched this right after we recorded our last episode. At the time of my watching, I looked at my phone and it said 1235 and I was getting ready to go to bed. And I was like, okay, well, I'm in it now. I'm in it because of what just happened. What's what's happening here? We get a musical number. We get a freaking musical number. And it's not just any song. It is the theme song from The NeverEnding Story, complete with a split-screen duet. Are you kidding me? Duffer Brothers, way to double down on nostalgia and just craziness. And you could literally make the argument that this has no place in the tonal moment of this episode. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't care because it's completely absurd and completely teenage and completely perfect for this moment. At the very least, if anything, completely entertaining. And I was taken aback with so much joy and <laughs> happiness yeah. and weirdness all at once. It was fantastic. It's such an earworm that like gets in your head and you're just, you just start humming that theme song. I've had it in my head for two days now. <laughs> And I I think what's even more interesting, what makes the scene work is that we get all the cutaways 
to Hopper and everybody else, and their reactions are kind of our reactions, but at the same time, I'm like, <laughs> yes. I'm like tapping my foot, like, yeah, but I like this song, and they're doing a good job, you know? Yes. <laughs> I'm enjoying their rendition of it, but I'm also just like jaw open, like, what is happening right now? We're in the middle of a life or yeah. death situation, and, the, you know, but of course, Susie doesn't know that, so. And right. as Susie mentioned, you haven't called me in a week, Dustin, so it's been a whole week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whole week, which is when like you're, years for kids. Yeah, when you're, when you're that age, that's a that's a long yeah. time. I mean, even in modern day, I would say people, if they go on a date and they don't get a text back the next morning, they're like, what's going on? And they're ghosting me. So I, it makes sense if she hasn't heard from him in a week. She's wants to verify his his love for her. And this is their sort of secret song that they share together. Of course, she has no idea that there's like literally 20 people <laughs> listening in. On the, li- on the party line. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. I think my favorite reaction was Hopper just sort of turning around and his face yeah. being like, what the crap is going on? <laughs> what what world am I living in right now? And he doesn't know this song. This is from a movie that came out in 1984, which is like yeah. last year. For him, there's no way he went to the movie to see the never-ending story movies or that he knows what this song is. So he is just probably completely like, he's like, why are we listening to this? I need this number right now. And of course, this is when just a quick Google search would be so helpful. But they did not have that back. I mean, we could look up Planes Constant and know it like that. But this is what people had to do back in the day to get information. They had to find somebody that knew Mm -hmm. that. And uh, it wasn't necessarily that easy. Yeah. One final thought before we move back into the (laughs) tension of the episode is at the (laughs) very least, I think this was a a great way to showcase Gatton Matazaro. I cannot pronounce his last name. Gatton Matazaro. Or it might be Gatton. I'm not sure, but yeah. Gatton Matt GM. Call him GM. That's fine. We'll do that. Yeah, there you go. I remember reading that at the time of this recording, I think he's doing something on Broadway but he's got singing chops, like he can sing. And so what a great way to really bring that talent into his character. It didn't feel weird. In fact, I think that's what makes this moment great is all the reactions from everybody are like, is this the Dustin that we know? No, it's not. There's another side to him. There's the Camp Nowhere Dustin who is more complex than we actually thought. And it's for us as as an audience, it's a great way to sort of get to know another side of him that we hadn't. And as an actor, I think it was great that they got to showcase that talent of his. I agree. And I have one interesting little side story now about Susie. So this came out on July 4th, 2019. In the fall of 2019, I went with Matthew Modine to New York Comic Con to make the rounds. We did an appearance for him at Tops at Dark Horse Comics and also at the Funko booth. And they had oh. a limited edition Susie Funko Pop, which they gave oh, me. Wow. It's the only one I have other than Dr. Brenner. This is my one. It was only available at that Comic-Con. I don't know if it's worth anything, but I've held on to it and it's still in its original I packaging. I think it's worth something. <laughs> that is great. It even says New York Comic-Con exclusive right on it. So... Yeah, so, so great. It, it will always remind me of that day that I got to go to Comic-Con with Matthew and, you know, meet the folks at Funko and they gifted me this Susie Funko Pop. That's so cool, man. That's so cool. Because yeah, I know you, if people don't know listening, Patch is a huge Funko Pop fan, collector, whatnot. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so. and I will say this: my birthday, as of the this recording, my birthday just kind of happened, and my friend Adam sent me a Funko Who? of Alexi. My <laughs> yes, friend Adam. I did with his Slurpee. <laughs> with his Slurpee, which is the best accent piece for any character today, because I know that if I get another yeah. one, I'll be like, "That's a great accent piece too." But yes, I I felt that. Well, we both were saddened by Alexi's early demise in the last episode. So I felt like this is a way to remember him and allow him to live on in vinyl pop form. And he will. He might stay in the box too. He might stay in the box. I don't know. I'm I'm debating whether or not to keep him there. But I don't know. I've got two that are encased in plastic outside their boxes (laughs) or around their boxes. One being my pop figure that was made for me. Oh, like additional like an extra uh, plastic yeah yeah like an official pop cover and then the other one is of course the signed martin brenner that you gifted me for christmas which i'm very grateful for i don't know if i'm gonna have one for alexi i feel like those that are dead those that we celebrate their not their passing but celebrate their legacy on this show maybe they need covers as well so if i get barb or bob or billy (laughs) you can (laughs) have i don't know (laughs) Have like a little memorial for them. Yeah. In, in memoriam section of your shelf where it's all, you know, the uh, we lost them too soon. Stranger Things characters. Right. <laughs> and there's quite a few. And it yes, the numbers continue to climb in, in this episode yeah. as well. That may get expensive to, to have a memorial. Yeah. So maybe I'll just stick with Alexi. <laughs> That's my only dead one. Right. We'll see. Yeah. All right. So so back to the story. After the great musical number, then we are still kind of in the in the craziness. She gives him the number, which opens the safe. And then Erica basically turns the channel. And my notes say this, biggest wet blanket ever. <laughs> and I don't think that's inaccurate. I think that's pretty spot on. You can fight me if you want, listeners. I concur. And her expression as well is just like, what are you pissed off at, Erica? What are you yeah. mad at? You should be who, thanking who? Dustin and yeah. Susie because otherwise you're not finding anyone else that knows Plank's constant at whatever this is, 1130 at night on yeah. a Saturday night. So sorry, folks. Go home. Sorry, Erica. Watch My Little Pony. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly. sorry, though. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then we're back at Starcourt. Billy comes out of his burning car. He sees Mike, Elle, and Max. The chase is on. The creature stops chasing the Griswolds and turns back. So they do, which is really smart. Whatever. It's not really smart, but I get it. You know, you're protecting your people. In any other movie that actually has logic, they wouldn't turn back. They'd continue on. But eventually Billy catches up to the trio. Max tries to confront him, which I think is great. But we know what was going to happen, and it did. She promptly gets thrown around like a ragdoll along with everybody else. So Billy has no... There's no mercy. You know, he is Cobra Kai through and through. (laughs) Fight, <laughs> strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Right. Like, Johnny Lawrence would be proud of yeah. 1984 Johnny Lawrence, not today Johnny Lawrence. Mike tries valiantly to kind of confront Billy, but just gets, like, knocked aside, like, swatted. Nope. <laughs> like a fly. <laughs> like a fly. Exactly. Like yeah. a fly. It's at this point that Billy takes Elle back up to the food court via Scoops Ahoy, by the way. Lays her down, similar to the way he does with Heather, and I'm like, all right, somebody's going to tear out a heart. Or at least slither up and do some face sucking. And then the creature's ready to attack. And right when the creature's about to attack, here come the fireworks, metaphorically and literally. 
And I confess that I'm a person who doesn't notice bad CGI. I don't want to be that guy who looks for bad CGI. I want to appreciate CGI when it's done well. The visual effects here are, f- are just fantastic. I love that it's strategic, that it's not just for show for us, but that they really are using these weaponized fireworks to try to, at the very least, distract the monster or weaken it. And they've even admitted, right. Adam, that they can't destroy it. They can only right. do something. There's there's no known way to actually destroy this thing apart from closing the gate and shutting it down. And so I love the valiancy here of using the fireworks to try to weaken it, distract it in some way, shape, or form, because they know that that's plan B. That's like the backup or that's the distractor plan while they close the gate. But the visuals here are just fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, this is essentially a plan. They're just buying Hopper and Murray and Joyce time, basically. They just need to distract this creature or perhaps make it feel pain and which we which we know it's feeling because Billy starts feeling pain he starts wincing and and screaming so clearly what these uh, satan's babies are hurting this creature enough that it's affecting Billy's ability to kind of keep L down so it's working the set with all the neon lights at night and then you have this giant CGI monster and then you have all these colorful explosions blasting around this is so much work i mean i know people that work in visual effects these types of scenes are just layers upon layers upon layers of visual effects that have to be added to make everything look as good as it does, where it doesn't look like you say, like you're not instantly like, oh, this is a lot of CG. Like, I mean, yes, your brain knows it's not real, but for you to suspend your disbelief and just go with it, it has to look, has to be up to a certain level, a certain bar that our brains can say, oh, this is really happening to these characters in this scene. And I buy it. And it's phenomenal. And clearly they have money. (laughs) They've got the budget to do it right. Yeah. And when you think about it, the fireworks are VFX. But we kind of forget that the creature is VFX too. So exactly, I don't know what physical, like if there's a physical structure that these kids are throwing these fireworks at for what visual reference. But if they're not, that's pretty fantastic for them to interact with nothing and throw nothing. Well, they throw something. They throw like probably like cardboard cylinders or something. But right. to have this dual kind of VFX happening, I would imagine, you know, if if I'm on the the creative team here, I'm like, all right, guys, so here's what we want to do. I want this team to be in charge of the monster at this point. And I want you guys to be in charge of the fireworks. So let's storyboard this out. I'm going to throw this at this creature here. What is the creature going to do? And then at that point, when are we going to throw this? And what's that going to look like? I mean, it's a very complex way to storyboard this thing. You're not just literally or metaphorically throwing this thing together. You have to think about choreography and to think about it digitally, I think is such a, an immense challenge because you're not dealing with real people. You can't block a scene with real people who are not there. You have to block the right. scene in your head. And that's why I think storyboarding is so important. I'd love to see the storyboards for this scene to know how is it that they were able to put this together in a way that allowed you to suspend your disbelief, to show the impact of these fireworks on this creature and have it respond, have its leg move up or something like that. It's just really impressive. It is. And they actually get in some good shots. I think one of the first goes right in its mouth. They do. <laughs> so, yes. You know, That's they're... what I was thinking is like, aim for the mouth, aim for the mouth. 
blow it up. They're <laughs> yep, they're using their elevated position on like either the second or maybe it's the third level to kind of throw these things down onto the creature and you know get get the higher ground. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Max and Mike they wake up, they run back to the food court, star court, some court, and L <laughs> appeals to Billy by recalling his memories with him. This is really cool. I love this moment. So she touches his face and in a way to connect with him, like we saw her earlier. And then we're flashing back to all the memories that she saw. And among many things, she's actually just recalling, essentially saying, I saw all this. I see with you. I'm with you in this. She says, she wore a hat with a blue ribbon, a long dress with a blue and red flower. Yellow, yellow sandals covered in sand. She was pretty. She was really pretty. And you, you were happy. And this moment, Adam, was really cool for me because I think we get what I think a lot of the audience wants, which is Billy's redemption. We know that he's been tortured before being infected. And so I think that the Mind Flayer saw him with that torment as the candidate. Like he wanted him to be that because maybe... I don't know, mythologically, he picks up on that anger. He picks up on that that frustration and that... that Maybe easier to control, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The fact that he's also swole doesn't doesn't hurt, that he can beat the (laughs) snot out of people. But the fact that Elle specifically appeals to his relationship with his mother because she spotted that. That's what she picked up on when she was connected to him before, that his mother was his anchor. And it was only when he was on the phone with her in that memory that she tells him that she's not coming back. That's when his life took a turn. That's when we see the later memories of him beating another kid up, being angry. And I think that that moment was Eleven's way of appealing to him and saying, look, I see you. I see your hurt. When she says to him, you were happy. I like that it's not, none of what she's saying is his mom talking, but her observing what she sees and validating the fact that his mom was his anchor. And when she was alive, he was happy. She doesn't promise him that she's going to come back to life, but I think it brings him back to a place where he's like, you know what? Wow. Yes. I can be Billy again. I can come back to who I once was. And that's what happens. Yeah. And by the way, he he sheds, I think, a single tear during the scene, which is, yep. uh, you know, yep. which is meaningful. You know, he, it's like one tear kind of breaks through his possession, if you will. Right. But I think it's, you know, it's it's not that dissimilar from when in Return of the Jedi, Luke gets Darth Vader to finally stop fighting him and, you yeah. know, redeem himself. You know, he find he remembers the good side of him when he was younger and happy and, and is able to to sort of let that come back to the surface and and bury the anger and the evil for a brief moment to do something good. And that's what he does. He essentially protects L from this monster, stands up to it for the first time in I think it's been about a week since he's been controlled by it. And he 
takes one for her and the team after he uses those swole muscles to block one of the tentacles. The other ones like catch him from either side, and then eventually one Ugh. comes right to yeah. his chest. He looks at L and he says, "L, take this tentacle off." No, he didn't say that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't do that. That just takes away from the moment. Sorry. I put it. It's the levity no, in me, no. my bad. No. It's okay. The so, Sean yeah, Levity. The Sean Levity. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, this is a real grisly way to die. And this harkens back to what we mentioned earlier in the episode. Just the intensity of the grossness and the just kind of grotesqueness ramped up more in this season. And at the same time, while all this is happening, Hopper and Joyce. They're down in the underground. They reach the machine, which is continuing to open the gate. They insert the keys. They're about to turn those keys, but then Hawkins Terminator shows up and stops the progress. This fight between Hopper and and him is so good. They take it outside to where that machine is. And there's this fantastic silhouette of them with the machine in the middle, right as they're about to square off. I mean, it's, it's almost like a scene from like a street fighter gang where I expected like the, the health bar to show up on both of their, right above their silhouettes <laughs> right. and be like, all right, who's going to win? It's a great fight. I, I don't know if Hopper had gained like superhuman strength because of the intensity of the situation, but he really does hold his own throughout the course of this fight, even as they're going down to that platform to where the machine is. It's just, I mean, it's a, it's a great choreographed battle. and It is, yeah. Fight to the death. Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, that's what it sort of became. Yeah, and that's what I think is happening here. I think Hopper knows, like, this is it. Like, that's where the adrenaline just pumped in, and you know, made him as strong as he could be because he got he took some bad blows in this fight. Yeah, and especially like when he gets like thrown down the steps and like he hits the railing on the side and kind of just flops oh, over. It's like, oh god, that's yeah. gonna give you back problems if you don't already have them hopper you're gonna have them for the rest of your life (laughs) he's got them already (laughs) it just exacerbates the issues but they're both big guys i mean that's the thing like yeah this russian terminator character is big but they're about the same height the terminator guy he's probably the more ripped of the two but hopper's like a big guy and he's got the extra cushioning (laughs) the extra padding yeah he's got the padding (laughs) to help him out and at the same time joyce is upstairs trying to put both keys in. I think she uses a belt to sort of stretch yes. herself out so she can do it. Kind of reminded me a little bit of like Richard Pryor and Superman three with the two. Totally. Keys. I, it's like, <laughs> and that's then, exactly, and that's exactly what he does to do it in, in, in Superman yeah. three. So it's, it came out in 1983. Maybe she saw it. Maybe that's where she got the, she probably never thought <laughs> she was going to have to be turning two keys by herself. But then she's like, but I saw Richard Pryor do it in Superman three. So I know what to and do. He was kind of goofy. Yeah. <laughs> so I he wasn't trying it. to save the world. He was just trying to hack into a computer. <laughs> so at this point, Hopper gets the upper hand, throws the Hawkins Terminator into the machine, which sort of sparks a bunch of stuff and things get chaotic. This is one of my favorite kind of nonverbal moments of the episode. Joyce looks down at Hopper. He's lit so well with the, the blue from the machine and the wind. He looks back at her. He kind of nods in slow-mo, and then he smiles. And we know what they're saying. He's saying, mm-hmm. I'll sacrifice. you got to do this for the greater good. She turns the keys, destroys the machine, which in turn destroys the bad guys, and it stops the gate from opening. And that cuts us back to the creature in the mall who dies. And this is where Max says her goodbye 
to Billy. And it's like these two back-to-back moments that you're like, you don't have a chance to kind of catch a breath of, of emotion because no. we've lost Hopper seemingly. And now we've lost Billy who we didn't like because he had a weird relationship with Mrs. Wheeler <laughs> almost and was mean to everybody. But, but he I didn't think deserve that. Just have, yeah. No, but I think good writing and storytelling allows us to genuinely have a heart change for people. There wasn't a heart change with Joyce and Hopper. I mean, we we cared deeply about both of them. So that loss was a different kind of emotional loss. What most people felt, I felt, was that we wanted Billy to be able to join the crew. We wanted Billy to become an ally for this team. For Max, who I think throughout the season, we saw that she saw Billy, the scared little boy, the boy with a human heart, <laughs> inside the pain or the possession of the mind flare. And I think that scene in the sauna, I don't know if we questioned it, but I know that I'd thought about, well, is this Billy being real Billy? Like being, I'm scared. I don't want to do it. Or is this the mind flare manipulating him? And I think based off of what we saw here, it's the former. I think it's, it was Billy fighting, but being unable to overcome this. And right. as a result, I, I agree. that's what we get. So Max yeah. says goodbye to Billy and he says, I'm sorry, which is, somewhat tropey but still valid for this moment especially for these are kids dealing with trauma basically with an experience i mean look around them in this scene there's a destroyed mall there's a giant creature that just collapsed in the middle they're never going to be able to go to a shopping mall again without thinking about this incident so (laughs) no more (laughs) the gap specifically to the mall (laughs) yeah yeah you want to go to the gap no don't make me go to the gap (laughs) never again (laughs) They're going to be shopping at whatever it was, Big Bargain Lots or whatever. I don't know what that other place. Oh, yeah, the grocery store. Yeah. They're like, I'm just going to buy groceries. I'm not going to wear clothes ever again. (laughs) That, I can't actually know. That has a bad connection as well. That's where Elle was infected. And so they really can't go anywhere. Maybe the arcade. The arcade was a happy place. That there was nothing, nothing bad happened there. Did make an appearance in this season. I was a little disappointed that it didn't. Maybe it went out of business. Well, kind of does. You see it. It's right next to the when we get into the uh, epilogue. It's right next to the video store. It's kind of the perfect place. You get to go to the video store and oh, then go to the okay. arcade. Gotcha. Okay. So after the explosion, Joyce goes down to find Jim, who she can't find. This is uh, where Murray finds her. And says, "Where's Jim?" and She's like, I don't know, he's dead, or is he? <laughs> anyway, yeah. it wasn't in slow motion or like on an acid trip. It wasn't like that at all. But uh, Murray leads them both out of the underground. And then we're in Starcourt again. Helicopters come flying over. They land in the parking lot. And who are they carrying? But none other than, yes, Sam Owens. Thank you for paying this off, Duffers. Appreciate that. Because I think Sam Owens is fantastic. What I think is even better is the look that he gives as he goes down to the underground. I'm asking myself, what does he know? Because his facial expression is really unresolved. I can't tell if he's surprised at what he's seeing, if he was a part of this and he was like, oh my gosh, I didn't expect to get this far. At this point, I don't know. I'm inclined to believe that he is on the side of Hopper. There was nothing from last season that said he had some kind of nefarious motive. And so I really think he feels like I can't believe this exists. I cannot believe that it's here in Hawkins, that the Russians are here and that they have a machine or had a machine that can open a gate. I think he thought, I thought this was confined to here and it's not. And right. It scares him. I agree with you. I, I don't think he knew about this. Maybe like if I'm sort of putting on my 
writer's cap, I would say maybe he, as part of his intelligence connection, maybe he knows that there are other places where people have attempted to open a gate to this other dimension. Maybe he knows through, again, through intelligence agents that the Russians have been trying to open a gate, but never did he imagine that it was happening on American soil. So I think that clearly he and his team at the end of last season realized this is too dangerous to be messing around with. We have to keep it closed. We have to keep Hawkins Lab sealed up forever because as curious as we are as scientists, we can't control what's on the other side. So we need to keep it locked up. And uh, Yeah. yeah, it's great to see Paul Reiser, although it's interesting. They got him back. I don't think he says a single word. I don't think he has one word or one line of dialogue. (laughs) He just makes a lot of good emotive expressions and observes, you know, what's going on. But great to see him. And for his presence, he gets his own credit with Paul Reiser at the end. That's right. I saw that at the end so that no one was, you know, know, so we didn't get a a clue that he was going to be popping up at the end. Speaking of which, I did confirm, we talked about this, I believe, on episode two or three, the scene where Joyce flashes back and sees Bob's death. Oh, yeah. We had discussed, you know, was that reshots? Was that replicated? His name was not at the end of the credits. So I think it was what you said and that it's additional footage or footage that was colored differently to feel a little bit more isolated that it was not made specifically for this episode, that it was probably reshot or shot footage that was just reused for that particular scene. Right, right. Or maybe like they punched in closer on a shot, you know, uh, so it was more of a close, you know, just kind of using a wider shot from before and like just cropped it or something. So it felt more personal, more in his face. The last moments of this scene, we find Joyce and Will, they're embracing, crying, of course. She sees L in the distance making eye contact and they basically say it without saying it. Hopper is no more. There's a lot of ugly crying in these last 15 minutes, Adam. I won't say that some of them were not from me, but I'll just leave it at that. It was, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it was a lot of crying. There was a lot of crying going on, but uh, yeah. some great nonverbals happen in these last few moments. And then the screen goes black and now it's three months later the way that this gets introduced is it's yeah. like hard copy uh, for the so 80s. Welcome to Hawkins, Indiana. A wonderful place to grow up, to raise your family, to walk your dog. But then, on July 4th, everything changed. But it's called Cutting Edge. I guess that's the name of the show. Not the ice skating movie. No, it's not (laughs) a little bit different tone from this, but it's like this whole documentary episode on what Hawkins has become. We sort of get updated on conspiracy theories and what happened to the mayor and all this stuff. And it's accented by this, this little camera shot of the sign that says, welcome to Hawkins and Hawkins has sort of been rubbed out and instead it's been spray painted with the word hell. (laughs) It's like, welcome to hell. And I'm like, I want to watch this episode. That's a great promo for it. It looks really entertaining, and I hope they actually made this episode in its entirety because it would be fun to watch. And I love the shot, by the way, when they show, they talk about some of the other people that have sort of mysteriously died, or and they show yeah. a split screen of Bob Newby and Barb, and <laughs> Bob Newby's <laughs> picture 
Sean Astin. He has the funniest expression and smile on his face. And then if you look at the bottom, it says Radio Shack Employee of the Month. <laughs> I just feel like they're having fun here, you know. Just oh yeah, with absolutely. This. And, and you know, and Bob's. I'm sorry, and Barb's photo. It's hard with all the bees, right? Barb's photo is clearly like her, like glamour yearbook photo shot. You know, just yeah, posing, looking <laughs> gone, gone <Yeah>. too soon. <laughs> yeah, not her demodog death replicated no. Barb shot. <laughs> oh, and I loved no, and I loved the the shot of all the Dungeons and Dragons books and manuals, and then it says, "Some believe a rise in Satanism is to blame." <laughs> <laughs> Because and that was a real thing in the mid early yeah. mid '80s. There was that whole satanic panic thing where like there were like these mothers organizations who were worried about the music and the games and the movies that were turning kids into devil worshippers, and it was all like proved to be later on, you know, just a, a kind of like the Halloween razor blades in the candy. Like it's all like an urban yeah. legend, really. But it was a real thing that shows like this were doing just to kind of get people riled up and. You know, it's all about you know, creating fear and uncertainty, and that gets ratings. Yeah, well, that would get my my eyes on it because it's a it's very appealing. <laughs> yeah, we open up with the video store. Robin and Steve need new jobs for obvious reasons, and they go into the video store to try to impress. Yes, Keith is back for at least a moment, still yeah. eating those Cheetos, still with that sort of sarcastic Eeyore approach to life. <laughs> And in order to get the job, Adam, they have to answer his like questions three, which are, what are your three favorite movies? <laughs> right. Robin's like, good. Uh, the Apartment, Hidden Fortress, Children of Paradise. They're enough to get her the job. And then he asks Steve. You, go. Favorite movies. Did I stutter? Uh, Animal House, for sure. Um, Eyes on me, Harrington. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars. A new hope. Uh, a new what now? Which Star Wars? One with the teddy bears, duh. No. Uh, oh, the one that, that just came out, the movie that just came out. The one with the DeLorean and Alex P. Keaton and he's trying to bang his mom. <laughs> the time. Yeah, those are my top three classics. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine a synopsis for a movie oh. like that? I mean, what in the world kind of audience would you get for that movie? <laughs> It's, and it's kind of not that far off, you know, but it's, nope. yeah. But did you notice he does revise his picks after he knocks <laughs> he over the Phoebe Cates standee from Fast Times at Ridgemont High? He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, uh, Fast Times, top three, Keith. <laughs> Classic. So I don't know Classic. which I don't know which one he's taking out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know which yeah. one's getting booted to insert Fast Times. And he thinks it's a classic, and I think it came out two or three years prior. So yeah, maybe he's smart enough to get rid of back to the future, even though that's a classic today, but at the time it had just come out. So you can't right. really call something a classic if it just released two days no. ago or three months ago. While Keith wants to just not give him a job, Robin says, Hey, he can be a chick magnet to convince girls to come in. You need that. He needs that. And I'm assuming that they get a job at the video store by the end of this. I think Keith's facial expressions through this whole bit are fantastic. He really could be a poor man's Kylo Ren with the way that he sort of <laughs> stares down Steve. He does the whole eyes on me with his, with his two fingers to his eyes. I mean, to ask the actor to come back, I think, just like with Sean Astin, 
I mean, you just want to own the scene that you're in. If you're going to be there for a few minutes, I mean, I'm sure these guys think it's an honor to come reprise a role. So to be able to do that, I think that this guy was having a blast reprising his role as Keith. Absolutely. And good for him for moving up in the world. He, he, as I mentioned, if when they pull up in the car, if you look to the right, you'll see the arcade, like literally next door to, I think it's called family video. And uh, yeah, so clearly he was a manager at, at the arcade and he was able to perhaps get a promotion by being a manager at family video. And, yeah. and I get the impression here as well. Yeah, I get the impression that they all went to school together or at one point because I think Robin says like something about how he's not like he was in school, essentially meaning that like Keith and Robin were the kind of you know, not unpopular ones. And of course, Keith's not going to want to give Steve a job because he still holds some kind of you know grudge from his behavior from their high school time. Then we're at the buyer house and it's moving day. And I don't know that I didn't expect this, but I kind of didn't, but it makes sense. You know, Hopper's no longer there. Joyce doesn't yeah. really have a reason to be there, especially since she's lost the one person that she was going to build a relationship with beyond what they had. Right. The levity here is really good. And I say that very sincerely. It opens up. I will say this from a writing standpoint, you had this moment at the video store, which is just all laughs. And these scenes at the buyer house get really sort of emotional pretty quickly, pretty dramatic, pretty quickly. But I like that there's a, a way into it that starts with Max and Lucas basically making fun of Dustin by recreating the great musical scene. Rhymes that keep their secrets will unfold behind the clouds. Wait, do we get that first right? It's unfold behind the clouds? Yeah. But you're butchering it, so could you please stop? So then join in, Dusty Bun. Yeah, come on, Dusty Bun. Why don't you join us? You guys are so funny. You should be on Carson. Can't we just hear your rendition? No. Please, just one verse. No. No way. It's reserved for Susie's ears and Susie's ears alone. Turn around. Look at what you see. And the way this finishes is great because he just throws the middle finger at them while they're singing <laughs> from across the <laughs> room. And that banter continues as we move to Will giving away his D&D stuff. This was sort of a fake out for me. I've had fake outs in the show already. Mike says, hey, that's the donation box. And he says, yeah, I know, but I can always use yours when and if I come back. So there's kind of an open door there. Mike says, what if you decide to join another party? And I love these two words, I think basically mend the fence or basically bring the their relationship back to wholeness. He says, not possible. And they share a smile. And that's good. I mean, that's good for me because yeah. we don't really need a long conversation from these two. We know they're best friends. We know that growing up is not going to change that per se. I think they have a bond that extends beyond puberty, that extends beyond D&D. &D. And for him to say not possible, I think says so much about the fact that it's as if he's saying, Mike, nothing's going to break this bond that we have. We are very much connected, not only by the events of the last couple of years, but from our lives before. And no matter what happens, I want us to continue to be connected in a way that matters more than just basement campaigns of D&D. I agree completely. And it, as sad as it is to see Will, you know, as we talked over and over again in this season, Will was just constantly, especially in the first few episodes, kind of badgering 
his friends to just want to play D&D and to see him kind of donating or casting that part of him aside, essentially, is kind of sad. You know, it's kind of him now he is in his own way. He's finally growing up. He's saying, I don't need this anymore. That makes me sad because he clearly, clearly loved it. But, you know, who knows? Hey, if he waits 35 years, he can play on Zoom like I do with anybody <laughs> he wants. <laughs> Good point. Good point. So then we're with Jonathan and Nancy. They're sharing a really great moment. He's, I believe, in his old bedroom. And yeah. he says, 17 years of my life packed up into one day. The blocking here is really great. They're sort of not really silhouetted, but they're isolated. That wide shot from the door. She wraps her arms around him and she says, we could hide you in a tent like L. In other words, saying you can stay. They're just sort of being in that moment together. And it's kind of finished off with him saying, a wise man once said, referring to Murray, we've got shared trauma. So what's a little more? And she says, so what's a little more? So these goodbyes that are being said, I think, are great in that we're sort of getting our closure, these pockets of relationships that we're following, and whether you like the relationship or not, they feel very much appropriate goodbyes for for what we're experiencing at this point. Yeah, and then we also, of course, get Mike and Elle, which I think is a key relationship, an important relationship. And I know you were hoping that the season would end with Christmas time. Not quite Christmas, but they do mention Christmas and Thanksgiving here. So I thought that might Christmas be episode. for you. We did it. Yeah. We did it. It's a Christmas show. They it mentioned says, Christmas. You know, we'll come back at Christmas. <laughs> yeah. But this and... is yeah. This is also, you know, a, a tough scene because we go back to that attempt by Mike to tell Elle that he loves her. And now we find out that she kind of understood what he was saying all along, or at least she does now in retrospect. Yeah. That scene finishes with another awkward kiss, which again, yes. appropriate, but still just <laughs> so weird to look at. Then, um, <laughs> you know, Joyce doesn't have someone to say goodbye to. She's already said goodbye. Um, she finds the heart to heart letter from Hopper and she ends up giving it to Elle who reads it. We find out that he actually wrote his own stuff. So there's like three parts to this. There's the heart to heart that he wrote down from Joyce. There's the delivery that he made about right. the threat <laughs> conversation. And then we get this. I love this voiceover. I mean, I think a lot of people do. And so I'm probably saying a lot of what other people have said before and will continue to say. Mm-hmm. Um, he focuses on feelings. So as he's writing and going over this, he starts kind of writing his own thoughts. This is where the ugly crying gets in like full force as we're seeing everybody will especially like i really zeroed on on him like he legit i almost felt like the actor knew that this was like the last time they were going to see each other even though there's a season four (laughs) (laughs) and even though it was season three hints at a season four i really felt like if we didn't get the stinger wow what a great way to say goodbye because i felt like these actors were saying goodbye to each other in a way that was like when are we going to see each other again we're not going to have this shared experience anymore working for the show and Honestly, if the series had ended here, I would have been completely fine because it felt so satisfying with this voiceover. It's like they're hugging their innocence goodbye, knowing that things will never be the same again. That idea is really poignant, but when Hopper says, But I know you're getting older. 
growing, changing. And I guess, if I'm being really honest, that's what scares me. I don't want things to change. That would have been completely fine. Like, I would have been like, yes, that's how I feel about my son. I don't want him to grow up. I, I want him to just be a child for as long as he can and not have his innocence ripped away. But no, there's this recognition of growing up is a good thing and that it's going to bring stuff that's going to hurt and that hurt is going to make a person better. He says, So you know what? Keep on growing up, kid. Don't let me stop you. Make mistakes, learn from them. And when life hurts you, because it will, remember the hurt. The hurt is good. It means you're out of that cave. It's all accented by hugs. There's a moment where Mike's hugging his mom, and this is where I lose it because I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know why I'm crying. Maybe it's I'm crying because everybody's crying. But when Mike hugs his mom, both times, I kid you not, Adam, both times when I watched this, that was the moment I was like, I'm losing it. Okay, whatever. Give yeah, me the tissues. Yeah. Ah, it's, it's just beautifully hard to watch because you're emotionally in this with them. And you know that whatever comes next, whether it's the end of the series or a season four, it's like, it's not going to be the same. We're not going right. to go back to the buyer house. We're not going to play D&D. Yeah. And that's part of what life is about is that things that's like the one thing that will always be constant is that there will be change and that we can't sort of try to not change because then you're fighting against time essentially. And I think what makes this, this whole hopper letter scene even stronger is that we actually get not just the voiceover of the letter, you know, read by David Harbour, but we get a scene that we never saw of him trying to write the letter in his cabin before before it was destroyed as uh, right. Lucas points out and so we get to sort of see him one more time even though he's gone or you know we assume and so we get to see him one more time before he was beaten up by the Russian and uh, yeah. that, that's nice you know it's always nice I think when you get a chance to sort of see a character that's died or 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 that you will never see again to see them in the past, sort of in this kind of way. It's a technique that a lot of films use at, at times as well. And I think this whole scene kind of reminds me of the tagline for this whole season. I remember when it came out, whether it was the trailers or the kind of key art that was on online, it said, one summer can change everything. And I think that's really what this whole season is about, is that by the time this summer ends, it's all going to be different. You know, the, the fellowship is literally being pulled apart in, in different directions and yeah. uh, and people have died and, and relationships have changed and Elle is essentially being adopted by Joyce and I think that's something that's interesting because when they when Joyce and Hopper have that exchange it makes me wonder like not only are they like how much are they how much are they saying to each other through that look is it like yes I know what you have to do you have to sacrifice yourself. And yes, I'll take care of L. You know, like I feel like there's yeah. there's an understanding there, a, a nonverbal understanding that don't worry, she'll be fine. Yeah. Joyce said goodbye to the buyer house and really so do we. We've talked about how music, not just the score, it's always good, but the use of popular songs 
really accent the series. I thought that Heroes, the Peter Gabriel rendition, is really good. There are several versions of Heroes that I like. I mean, they all yeah. have their own kind of attitude or own kind of feeling. This one is good because I like the way that Peter Gabriel sings it very, like he's struggling to sing it. Mm-hmm. It's like a ballad. It's different from like the Wallflowers that made it popular in the 90s and different from, I don't remember who made it popular in the 80s. There was another cover of it. But this felt really, really appropriate because it was almost as if it was like a a somber way of saying, yes, we can be heroes for just one day. Like he's almost like taking a last breath. And I felt like that's kind of how we feel with this crew is they're taking their final breath of this moment, the buyer house, the place in which we've seen them grow up for three seasons. And for those who waited around to see these seasons when they came out several years, I mean, we're knocking these things out in the course of months. A lot of people grew up with these, these characters over the course of several years. So I think it's very appropriate that the show ends pre credits with this moment. And like I said, if this were the last moment of the last scene of the last episode of the series, I would have said in scene and that's great. But of course the Duffers like George Lucas can't stop picking, can't stop digging. <laughs> and, and I'm happy with that because I, I like this. This is good. So the credits roll. I was going to stop. And then I'm like, wait, what are those little white flecks? Right. The yep. And I'm like, wait, is there some, I'm hearing wind. Oh, are we getting a stinger? And yeah, we get a stinger. <laughs> Worm can, can chop, can, oh, I can't say the word. We're in Russia in a city called Kamchatka, Russia. Kamchatka. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think that's yeah. how you say it. We're in Russia. It's I, cold. I think, is it this, I'm assuming the same place that we were introduced at the very beginning of the first episode Maybe, of the season. Yeah. It looks similar, but granted, a lot of Russia in the winter looks the same. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's a stereotypical Russia. <laughs> yeah, it's it's somewhere um, near where uh, Rocky was training during Rocky Four. Yeah. Somewhere. If, if you look in the there. distance, you can see him going, <laughs> Drago! Right? <laughs> Actually, he's filming the movie right now. That's right. It's for, right. for its release in 1986. <laughs> We're sort of at like a looks like a prison camp. I mean, it could be this place, but it definitely feels like there's a there's a prison camp feel to it. There are prisoners, yeah. including an American, which obviously is like, okay, is that Hopper? Could that be? Uh, could it be Brenner? Part of me thinks no, it's not Brenner because Brenner has this weird accent that hasn't been explained yet. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> but he clearly speaks English, so I don't know. Maybe this is something we can ask Matthew. I'll ask him just at some point randomly and like, listen, dude, you got to explain this if I don't get an answer. Anyway, um, one of these people, not the American, gets taken to a cage where there appears to be blood on the floor. And that's never a good thing. At this point, what I think is a demodog comes out. I thought it may have been Dart. I didn't look at his butt. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe an international Dart. But apparently it's a demogorgon. And I thought to myself, okay, were Demodogs like precursor to Demogorgons? Like were Demodogs like the teenage versions of Demogorgons because of the way he he crawls in? I'm inclined to believe no, because I looked at the arms the second time I watched this and I thought Demogorgon arms look very much like human arms, whereas Demodogs have a clear like four four leg canine type of thing. So I think it was just a Demogorgon crawling on all fours to get out of that little door. And then of course it yeah. comes up and then it yells at the prisoner, assuming 
that it, that's a precursor before it eats it. And that's where we're left with a global upside down, apparently. <laughs> yeah. There are clearly more than one entryway or entry point to this upside down universe. And now we know there's definitely one in Russia that has opened. So yes, the big question, of course, is who is the American? And also, how did they get this Demogorgon? And is there more than one? And is, yeah, yeah there's a lot of, you know, unanswered questions here. It's a uh, it, good ending. Good stinger. It is a good ending. And I will say from a VFX standpoint, the Demogorgon here compared to the first one looks a little bit smoother, looks a little bit more refined in terms of its design. Definitely. So it slithers more than it did in the first. It's a little bit more rigid in the first season. Lit very much uh, more subtly, um, apart from the last episode of the first season where Elle takes him down. I, I love the look of, of this Demogorgon. And I was like, oh, I kind of am glad that we're kind of going back a little bit. But you could argue that, okay, are we going back to season one? I think this sort of is more about what we talked about earlier, which is he, the Mind Flayer, is using as many weapons as possible. The Demogorgons, Demodogs, the whatever we call this spider thing. And I don't think we're going backwards. I think we're just seeing phases. Like phase one was Demogorgons, phase two is Demodogs and underground tunnels and vines, and phase three is build them all and create a creature that eats people. So maybe we're in phase one in Russia and the crew in Hawkins is like, let's stop now. We don't want to build them all and have pumpkins die. You know, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of what we did in the last couple of seasons. So I I think, I think I need to see season four, which I know we're going to get into (laughs) at some point. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah. No, I think a lot of what you're suggesting is right on. And some of, your questions will be answered in the future and some may still not be. And I think, <laughs> yeah, Demogorgons and Demodog. I think Demogorgons are kind of like scouts. That's how, what I, I see them as kind of okay. like if you're okay. sending a scout into enemy territory, right? They're more stealthy. They're more there to, to perform a, a reconnoiter, you know, to see what's on the other side and bring back intelligence to the command whoever's in charge. Yeah. So that's my impression. And maybe it got trapped, right? Maybe as the gates closed, perhaps one of these Demogorgons got trapped in Russia. That, I mean, they don't give you a lot right now of information. That's just kind of of my, my guess. Well, I think, I think what we see is at the very least one, one final thought is if there's a Demogorgon, what we know is that it's being controlled by the Russians at the very least it's caged and they're feeding it. So whatever it's supplying to them is important. I don't know if they're communicating with it. I don't know if they're getting something out of it, but I know that they have captured it. Right. Trying to keep it alive at the very least. You know, yeah. By and they're willing feeding it humans. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, I think that's a great way to to end the season with that kind of stinger. And it really makes me curious. And I'm glad that we're <laughs> Continuing this voyage down the underside, under upside down, under I was gonna say underworld, <laughs> upside down <laughs> rabbit hole. And you know, yeah. now that we're global, I really am excited to see us kind of get out of Hawkins. We've got reason to now with some of the crew moving away and with this stuff happening in Russia. I'm excited to see geographically where we're going as as well as uh, from a storytelling standpoint. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is a chance now to sort of expand the mythology of the Stranger Things universe and tell potentially a broader story than just that of the small Indiana town. And uh, we'll get into more of that in chapter nine of season three. No, wait, no, there's no, there's no chapter what? nine. What? <laughs> the mysterious the secret episode. What? The secret episode. If you keep pressing the next button like four yeah. or five times. Like if, you, if you press up, up, down, down, left, right, left, I don't know, select, start, whatever it was. Konami code for Netflix. I love it. Love to see that. It would be cool if they did something like that, like a secret episode of a show that's only available for like 24 hours or something. Then it disappears forever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. That'd be great. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us on this episode of an original series. We are wrapping up this season, but we will be back with another conversation celebrating the world of long form storytelling. Until then, I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here.